2: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's one 450 6624 or send an email to live at asknoashow.com. My name is Noah Cholai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off straight to the phones. You're on Ask Noah. What's on your mind?
3: Hey, I've got a question for you about uh, archiving music CDs. Okay. What's the best way to do that? What's the best way to do that without like encoding it into anything? I basically want to save like a .iso file, an image, an exact carbon copy
2: of my disc. You can do that. You can make an ISO of a of a music CD, and essentially the process for doing that would be to open a program like Brascerio, click on duplicate the disc, but instead of writing that disc to a, another disc, you would choose write to image file, and it will. That's exactly what it will do. It will create a a, a bit by bit copy of that digital music in an ISO format on your computer. Can I ask, well, first of all, did that answer your question?
3: Yes, it does. That's perfect.
2: Okay, so my next, so if you don't mind, i dig into it a little bit. What would be the purpose of doing that?
3: I have a library of about 2,000 music CDs, and I want to get rid of, uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't want to get rid of them. I just want to move them into boxes in storage so they're not cluttering up my living room. And I want to be able to, in the future, choose different um, delivery methods and different encoding methods based on whatever the whim I have.
2: So, and, and that's 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 somewhat what I thought you were going to say. I will just give you some unsolicited information. If you were to rip those CDs into a lossless uh, format like uh, PCM Audio, you will not lose any quality. It, it will essentially make an exact duplicate of those songs, but instead of coding them in an ISO which can be used to burn it back to a CD and like you say you can always then choose to re-encode those you could rip them mm-hmm. to lossless wave 44.1 sample rate and you will not lose any quality whatsoever you could do that a thousand times uh, 10,000 times and there would be no no loss not just no audible or perceivable loss but actually no loss to the, uh, to the audio file and if you go to something like FLAC, FLAC is not Truly lossless, but it is so close Mm -hmm. that you would that it's there's no perceivable loss But if you were if you if you stuck with PCM audio the recording industry does that all the time when they're actually Mastering stuff to begin with used to be on DAT or digital audio tapes now. They've moved over obviously to a a PC based workflow but uh, when they do that what they'll do is they'll send it to you know the recording engineer will take a sample and then he'll send it over and then The guy will open the file up and make some changes and, and, and tweak levels and all that and then they send it out and it goes to the next guy and they they it's not really encoding and decoding because you're not you're you're not choosing an algorithm to compress down. You're literally just taking that raw audio and moving it one place to another. But that's just food for thought. Not right. necessarily that you'd want to do that. But for example, that's what I do for my high fidelity music collection that I don't want to lose any quality.
3: Okay, good. Uh, and you know what? You just made me think of another question. Do you have time? Yeah, absolutely. You said that you have high fidelity music, so I know I have some S A CDs. Yes. You know, is there a way to uh, rip those uh, on Linux?
2: Yes, there is. Um, I will. I'll put some links in the show notes. There's actually another episode that we did where we actually dug into this, uh, and essentially what you what you're looking for. And I, we actually brought. I don't know if you're into the if you're you're into high fidelity music and stuff like that. Yes. Have you ever heard? Does the name Bob Carver ring a bell?
3: Yes, I think I heard an interview with you uh, where you guys were talking about uh, amps, uh, tube amps, or something like. Yes,
2: that. Yes, yes. Well, we were talking about digital audio interfaces that are for uh, that you plug into your computer that essentially use a one hundred ninety-two bit sampling rate, right, which is about six times or seven times what the recording industry uses to to generate the music to begin with and so the only way that you can actually go back and listen to music in that high of quality is to go back and find an original master recording because they don't they don't even like with the new pc-based workflow they actually they're using significantly less quality um, but super audio cds is what what you're talking about is actually the one of the ways to get high fidelity very high fidelity music and uh, and we have a, a whole episode that kind of talks about that and so I'll, I'll link that. And inside of that okay. episode, there's there's a bunch of, of tools and stuff that you can reference. But absolutely, that's a possibility. Okay. And it's what I personally do. Great. Thank you very much, Noah. Yeah, appreciate the time. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at AskNoahShow.com. We go to our interactive number room. Brent, welcome to the program.
4: So, um, just to make sure you can hear me, um, Mm -hmm. I have a a question that I think is right up your alley, basically, because um, I, for the last many years, uh, since you're on Linux Action Show and all of that, have taken a lot of the information uh that i learn in the tech space from you or at least as a springboard to go learn more so my question is specifically around uh, some dell laptops i know you've been a partner uh with them for quite a while and um i'm having a little bit of a problem with a laptop and i'm looking to diagnose it but i'm just wondering if um generally you've had any issues before with dell laptops and um solid state drives at all
2: Mm -hmm. i from time to time i've had a couple of issues I, what, the very first laptop I ever bought was a Dell Inspiron, it was the, it was a, like a $359 computer, it was all I could afford back when I was in high school. And what sold me on Dell pretty much up until this day has, was the level of customer service that I got with that machine because it was not the highest of quality of machine, right? It was a budget laptop, that's what it was. And with a budget laptop, you expect it to break when you are a high school student and you abuse it. But time after time, I would send it into them and they would fix it. Now in the later versions of, of Dell laptops, their quality, even on the lowest end ones, has come up considerably. What you've seen in the SSD space, though, is manufacturers can't really get their act together. First, we had SATA drives, then we had MSATA drives, then we had M.2 MVNE drives. Uh, and, and we continued to iterate and with every one of those iteration it has caused a problem because it, particularly when you're using a, a separate operating system like Linux it causes a problem because not every operating system has been tested with every laptop with every kind of configuration and so and I was actually just dealing with a, with a similar issue with the Dell Precision where it just no matter what we did we could not get Linux to boot on this particular computer the, the answer ended up being to install outside of UI So using the BIOS install. Now that is not going to work for much longer because the newest version of Dell laptops are shipping without support for legacy BIOS. So you have to boot into UEFI. Now my hope is, or my suspicion is because most of, if not all of Dell products line is hardware, has a hardware enablement stack with it, that they are going to fix that problem before they remove the legacy boot option.
4: Uh, yeah, that's great information. I, I'm. It sounds similar to the problem I'm having. I'm dealing with a Latitude E720, uh, 7240 with um, an 860 Evo M Serial ATA drive. So sure. maybe it's that combination with Linux. Anyways, we, Linux was working totally fine for like two to three months, uh, and then just one day stopped. Um, and the error message is just an invalid partition sort of message. So it's obviously a hard drive uh, related issue. And then did a reinstall and it worked fine for another month and then just kind of stopped. So it's it seems intermittent, but I just wondered if you had any uh, advice.
2: I'll tell you what's kind of concerning to me about that situation that you just described. We just bought a that exact laptop to use for our music production uh, business. And uh, I, I ordered a Samsung Evo, a 512 Samsung Evo to put in there. And we just got done building our entire music library. And if I get to a month in and the thing stops booting, i I might turn it into a frisbee and throw it across the room.
4: Yeah. So please keep me up to date on that. Um, otherwise, it's a fantastic laptop, and when it works, it's awesome. But it just kind of like, um, just kind of hiccups every once in a while. So um, if I find anything, I'll send it your way, and if you find anything, send it my way.
2: Absolutely. And thanks for joining us in our interactive room. We appreciate the question. Uh, Cheese Bacon, yeah. are you in here? When Cheese Bacon has a chance, just uh, oh, he's up and quite listening. If you get a chance, Cheese Bacon, jump on in as soon as I see you in here. We'll we'll put you on. Again, 1-855-450-NOAH, that's one 450 6624 the email, live at asknoahshow.com. Cheese Bacon joins us. Hey, Cheese Bacon, how are you?
5: Hey, man, I'm doing good. How are you, sir?
2: Excellent. How can we help?
5: Um, all right, so I, I'm, I'm kind of in a, in a conundrum here on a device to choose. So a little bit of a backstory. My wife is a freshman science teacher, um, and she's wanting something uh, a little portable, device to to basically walk around the classroom with so she's not tethered to you know the desk in and, and having to have you know the laptop hooked up to there so she can switch you know slides or or the next part of um, uh, the fet lab that they're working on which is primarily HTML5 but some of it is still flash it's being all converted over um, that being said uh, we're I've been looking at a few devices uh, the Microsoft Surface Go um, the Lenovo Mix 320, um, the Dell uh, 5290, and um, I've also looked at the iPad Pro, uh, but basically a, a smaller device. She really likes like the 10 inch, 11 inch form factor uh, screen, something that's, you know, small enough that's been portable enough for her. Um, so looking through all these devices, man, I'm, I'm just kind of at a loss uh, where the latitude, the 5290, is a 12 inch screen is going to be a little bit heavier Uh, is very much like a normal surface device Uh, starts at about 800 Uh, the the surface go if you want the 8 gig 128 gig SSD starts at about 549 but then you have to tack on another 150 for the keyboard and another hundred for the pen Um, and then the mix is kind of an underpowered device that you can really only get uh, with with four gigs of RAM, I believe. Um, So is there anything else out there that I'm missing? Uh, Is there any suggestions have, you know, since since you deal with with Dell uh, systems, have you dealt with any of these convertible two in ones? What's their reliability? You know, can you give me a little bit of info?
2: Yeah, sure. I have dealt with them. I've not had any reliability issues with them. The the issue that I've had with, um, and this isn't specific to Dell, it's not a knock on them, it's just a knock on the form factor. It works great as long as you continue to use it in tablet form. The problem with those, I guess the, the design specification of that computer is that when you go to sit down, you want to use it on your lap or you want to set it up on a desk, it becomes it becomes very difficult and cumbersome to use because the thing, it's just held on there with magnets, essentially, it wants to detach from the keyboard, and the only thing to keep it held up is that little kickstand that's at the back. I actually have a Microsoft Surface uh, first generation that I use for all sorts of little studio tasks, and it's a great little machine, but again, it is, it's, it's very cumbersome. There is one that you didn't include in your list that I've actually had success getting Linux working on uh, for a friend, and uh, that is the Samsung Galaxy Book 10. It's six twenty nine. Okay. It's six twenty nine. It does include a keyboard and a pen. Um, comes pre-installed with uh, with Windows ten, but it's essentially it's uh, it's essentially Samsung's competitor to the Microsoft Surface Book.
5: Excellent. Okay. Yeah, I did not know about this.
2: So I would check. I would check those out. Um, and then the other thing I would not rule out is I would not rule out using like a, a regular Android tablet or an iOS tablet. Right. If you, for what the situation that you've described and mind you, this is coming from a guy that hates mobile operating systems and thinks they're practically useless. But in, in certain circumstances, they fit really, really well. And the situation that you described, as much as I would like to tell you to, to use Linux everywhere, that might be a situation where it's probably appropriate to look at like a mobile tablet solution.
5: Right, and I have, I've looked at the, uh, the, the Galaxy Tab 410, which is their kind of DEX uh, system. Uh, and it's, it's not super good. Um, also looked at the iPad Pros. Another thing with the Android tablet and the iPad Pro is that some of the labs that she uses, uh, they're flash-based still. So that kind of leaves me pigeonholed a little bit to Windows 10. Um, And naturally, for for me, uh, whenever these devices become out of life for her, they become Linux gadgets for me. So naturally, I want to pick something that I can eventually (laughs) load Linux on, right? Um, She's like looking at me right now, just glaring. But I mean, it's the truth. You said
2: after she was done.
5: Exactly. Exactly right. So, you know, in a couple of years, right? Um, or whenever it starts running sluggish with the next Windows 10 update, I'll just and give it back to her. You know, who knows? But, um, but this uh, the, the Galaxy Book actually looks pretty interesting.
2: Awesome. Well, do keep me up to date. Do give us a call back and let us know what you land on and how it works. And, of course, if you get a chance to try it with Linux, I'd love to know that as well.
5: Oh, most definitely, dude. You'll you'll be the first to know. I thanks, pre- for the, uh, thanks for the heads up.
2: Yeah, thanks for joining us in our interactive mumber room. Again, you can join us by phone, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. In our interactive chat room in net pound asknoahshow. You can join us that way. Now, this week is an interesting week for me. I try to not talk about my personal life a whole heck of a lot on the show because, frankly, I figure nobody cares. But but, but this week, we're literally setting records in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Let me give you a little bit of perspective. The North Pole today was 20 degrees below zero. Now, this is in Fahrenheit. So, you folks across the pond, you pull out a web calculator and do some math. 20 degrees below zero. That was the North Pole. You want to te- take a guess what the temperature in Grand Forks, North Dakota was today? About noon, negative 25 Twenty five degrees below zero. It was five degrees warmer at the North Pole. With the windshield, and if you're not familiar with what windshield is because you live in you know Texas or someplace where it doesn't really affect you, the calculation of windshield is essentially if I take air temperature, it will take a certain amount of time for my body to cool off to the point that I die. And when you introduce wind, that process is rapidly accelerated. And so the equivalent temperature, once you factor in the wind chill, is negative 61 degrees, 61 degrees below zero. And I drove, I weathered that storm to come here to the studio to sit down and do a Linux show. Do you know the warmest place on Mars today was 19 degrees below zero? 19, and there's no wind on Mars, by the way, you know. So there's like a 40 degree difference, over 40 degree difference going from if you were I could, I could, I could improve my life by 40 degrees if I went and lived on freaking Mars. You wanna guess what the low is tonight? You wanna know, you know what it's gonna be tonight? Negative 70. 70 degrees below zero. So yeah, Brent. <laughs> Brent is Brent is close. Negative uh, uh, 25 is negative 31 degrees Celsius and he says that's pretty normal. So, and that's air temperature. So, let me know when we get to negative 61 tonight. Let me know when you get to negative 70. Cuz that's the weather I'm going. Weird things happen when you get to those kind of temperature extremes, okay? Diesel fuel, for example, gels at 50 degrees below zero. So, you can't run diesel trucks. Our garbage trucks came to pick up gar- uh, garbage today. And the hydraulic systems literally froze like the hydraulic fluid inside froze and these garbage trucks were stuck up and they had to bring them back into the garbage truck depot place where garbage trucks live and warm them up and then send them back out. I mean, just weird, weird stuff. It hurts to breathe. But you know what? There's no crime like you. (laughs) You can't. You can't commit crime in Grand Forks, North Dakota. You won't live long enough if you try to make a break. If you try and break in and rob someplace and run away, you'll you'll die. Four minutes, they're saying. So that, was the, that was the information I was given today when I was doing my, my other talk radio show. Four minutes of exposed skin will cause permanent damage at negative 70 degrees. I mean, just absolutely crazy nut, nutty weather that we're having here today. Again, 1-855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. Some of you may know that I do a couple of other shows in addition to this one, one of which is Destination Linux. Now, if you haven't checked out the Destination Linux podcast, you absolutely should do so. It's three of my best friends, Michael, Zeb, and Ryan, and we get together every week on Sundays and record a really fun episode about... Uh, Linux. And so where we got to last week was we, uh, we talk about various different projects. And of course, one of the advantages of the destination Linux crew is, and why I enjoy working with those guys so much is they put Linux first and everything else second. Linux first, everything else second. And so we appreciate, I appreciate working with people like that. So last week, they gave me a tip that I initially blew off and then proceeded to basically change my life. And that was an application that you can use to browse the Internet while in a terminal. Now, some of you are saying he's lost it. Why would you ever want to browse the Internet in a terminal? Well, hold with me, okay? When you work with servers like I do, you spend probably 80 plus percent of your time inside of a terminal. And guess what? Guess what servers don't have, at least if they're good servers and you plan for them not to crash. They don't have GUIs. Everything is done over the terminal. So, one of the most common work case scenarios is, SSH into a terminal, I'm working on something, I have to Google something, and then I have to go back into the terminal and and do those things. Now, there are certain environments where you are not allowed to bring your personal computer, where you use their computer, and guess what their computer has? No internet browser and no access uh, to the internet because why would you need it? You're just supposed to be using that to get into the server. Guess what the server has, at least if it's a server connected to the internet? Internet. So the question that I've had for years is you know, is there some way that I could actually make that work? And my friends over at Destination Linux, they they solved it for me. And it is with an amazing tool called Brosh. B-R-O-S-H. Now browse is a CLI based web browser that can render HTML5. And my gosh guys, it actually works. I was shocked. At first I was like, this is dumb and I'll never be able to use it. And then I started digging into it. And the thing is actually usable. So I've decided to take the Broche challenge. And for the next week, I am going to do all of my web browsing in Broche inside of the terminal. And anytime I have a work project that I have to do, obviously that's going to be done in Broche. And uh, I, I, I think that everybody should take a moment to try the Brosh challenge and see if you can use broche for a week because obviously you're going to go back to a GUI at some point but in the meantime once you learn the keystrokes and key commands and stuff and learn to kind of decode the pixelated graphics that show up once you can get past that it is probably the most useful Linux app I have ever used and I like it so much that we're actually going to have shirts made because everybody I talked to I was talking to some of some other IT professionals about this and I was explaining my newfound love for broche and they they look at me like I have three eyes. They look at me like I'm crazy. Then, of course, they try it and they're like, oh, that's amazing. So what I've gotten to is that I need to make a shirt that says you wouldn't understand it's a broche thing. And I'm just wondering if anybody else would be in with me on the broche challenge. If anybody wants to be in on broche because it is an amazing tool and you should totally check it out at brow.sh. That's brow. B-R-O-W dot S-H. Take it out. It's a broche, or Check it out. It's a broche thing. You wouldn't understand. By the way, uh, Brent, Brent, uh, Brent, Brenty photo says, how is it rendering photos? Not real great. It's uh, it's pretty pixelated, but the nice thing, uh, the nice thing, but for getting information when you're trying to research things, it, it actually works pretty well. You wouldn't use it for daytime browsing. You wouldn't use it for, you know, just casual stuff. You'd use it for, for getting work done. It's a tool essentially is kind of the way I'm that I'm looking at it. So. Uh, that's just the kind of uh, perfectly executed analysis technical analysis that you're going to get on the ask Noah show is an amazing tool that's going to change your life check it out brow.sh we'll have a link for you in the show notes couple minutes early but we'll head over to the Linux Newswire newsroom with Eric the IT guy here he is from the Linux Newswire studio
3: this is the weekly roundup with Eric the IT guy
1: hey Noah happy to be with you again and here are your Linux and open source headlines Wine, though Wine is not an emulator, is a compatibility layer to allow Windows applications to run on top of Linux. This week, they announced the release of version 4.0. New in this release is support for Vulkan, Direct3D12 support, and high DPI for Android. 4.0 brings with it a number of bug fixes, desktop integration fixes, and related cleanup. You can download 4.0 today for Linux and Mac. Dell has released some big news this week. The developer edition of the Dell XPS 13 has been revised. The new model, the 9380, proudly runs Ubuntu out of the box. The 1804 LTS version comes loaded by default. It comes loaded with an infinity-edge display as well as a choice of i3, i5, and i7 8th-gen processors. The most popular improvement was moving the camera back to the top of the display. It is available for purchase today from Dell.com. In a week filled with new releases, we have another to announce. Firefox 65 has been released to the public. The latest update comes packed with security fixes and performance improvements across the board. The headline feature would be the enhanced tracking protection. With the new version, you can now click on an information panel to quickly and easily see exactly what Firefox is blocking on any site. Finally, in our new segment today, we head over to the Raspberry Pi team who have just released the Compute Module 3 Plus. Launched almost five years ago, the Compute Module was intended to provide all the compute power of the Raspberry Pi into a small board capable of being embedded into devices such as IoT. Now, their newest generation comes packed with the same core but improved RAM, CPU, and flash capacity. The new Compute Module is available for sale now for $25. For LinuxNewsWire.com, I am Eric, the IT guy. Now, Noah, back to you.
2: Thank you, Eric. Eric joins us every week to give us a weekly roundup on Linux headlines. You can find it only here on the Ask Noah Show, podcast.asknoahshow.com on the playback, or asknoahshow.com on Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. Central, bottom of the hour, we're happy to have him, and thanks for being here, Eric. Now, Multipass has been released for Windows. The entire Linux community has been celebrating this. They've been very, very happy, very, very positive about it. And frankly, I've come at it with a little bit of a pessimistic attitude because I question if this is actually going to get more hands on Linux. It undoubtedly penetrates into the Windows market share. It undoubtedly gets people that are on Windows, makes it easier for them to use Linux. But the question I I, I pose to anybody that says, This is something that is going to move the needle forward to getting people on Linux. I ask, does it or does it just make it more convenient for them to use Linux from Windows? The more I think about this, though, first of all, props to Canonical. Fantastic work on their part, because regardless of which way this ends up going, there is absolutely more penetration into the Windows environment. There is more Linux on Windows today because of projects like Multipass than there would be without it. The second thing that dawns on me is I am not convinced in the absence of software like Multipass that people would actually go back to using Ubuntu proper. And here's why I say that. You have to understand exactly what Multipass is. It's essentially a, a, a GUI utility that allows you to manage Linux virtual servers hosted on Ubuntu. Where What people would do in the absence of projects like Multipass would be to go back to traditional virtualization technologies that the rest of their company is using and that they're all familiar with, they understand, they know, and they've used before. Guess what that is? That's Hyper-V. That's VMware. That's where the traditional IT model tells you to go when you want to virtualize something like Linux. And guess what? Because Linux runs... In such a lean way, it makes it ideal, actually, to be run on top on a virtual machine. There is very little incentive to spin up Linux machines on physical hardware. If you don't, if you already have a Windows virtual host, there's really no downside in adding your Linux guest there as opposed to it reinstalling that Windows host with a Linux uh, with with bare Linux install. Now, once you get down the road and you start to care a little bit about, more about security and reliability for your virtualization host, then you might look at you know redundancy and those kinds of things. You might start to look at using an actual Linux host on the metal. But of course, that would be just to virtualize to get more Linux guests back on there. I guess how I came to this conclusion is I started to think back to my virtualization career when I watched virtualization take off and when I worked. In, in the IT industry, back when virtualization first took off, it was VMware everywhere. Everywhere you turned around, somebody was spinning up VMware. Hyper-V wasn't a, 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 a twinkle in somebody's eye yet. Everything was kind of centered around VMware, which was actually based in, on large parts of Linux. Where you saw the shift from VMware into things like Procmox, into things like LibVirtD, Guess what? It wasn't people like me that advocate for Linux that brought people over there. No, you know what it was? Really fantastic graphical interfaces, really fast, fantastic graphical interfaces that allowed people to say, hey, you know what's better than VMware and all this crappy software I have to run to manage my virtual environment? You know, what's better being able to browse to a stinking Web page and just having all of the configuration stuff laid out right in front of me. I can spin virtual virtual boxes, virtual machines up just by clicking on on a button. That's great. Then Libvirt D came out, which was fantastic KVM technology, and Red Hat said we're going to pair that with a good graphic environment, and so they created Virt-Manager. And Virt-Manager now has become one of the de facto standards for managing uh, Libvirt D instances. Red Hat didn't stop there. No, they continued with Cockpit. And now Cockpit is a web-based GUI utility that allows you to manage virtual machines on from any place, on Windows, on Linux, doesn't matter because you, all you need is a web browser. Look what that has done to the virtualized market. Look what that has done to virtualized technology. I am in a number of different IT groups, as you might imagine, both professional ones and amateur uh, hobbyist ones. And every single one of them, when you start talking about virtualization technology, Procmox, D, things like OpenStack, all of those things make it into the discussion. Why did they make it into the discussion? They make it into the discussion because people understand that the, the path to get there has very little resistance. The end product is a high-quality product, and it has a very intuitive interface that even if you don't understand Linux and even if Linux is this big, scary thing to you, that you can approach this, you can put this into production, and you can trust that you're going to be able to tr- figure things out and troubleshoot on the fly. The vast majority of us that work in the IT industry, we don't have professional training. The vast majority of us that work in the IT industry, we, it, the, the, the professional training that we did receive was for a very specific software package with a very specific version, and we're just expected to figure it out after that. And so what we look for in a good, high-quality tool is a software platform and an interface that allows us to troubleshoot on the fly, effectively, efficiently, and quickly. And so putting all of that together, I come back and I look at Multipass and I say, maybe this is a good thing. Maybe this is a way for the Linux community to make further penetration into the Windows market. Maybe this is a way for the Linux community to tell people, hey, the path of getting an Ubuntu server is less using actual native Linux technology than it is for you to virtualize inside of a Windows virtualization environment. And guess what? When you're ready to flip your entire backend infrastructure, when you're ready to install Linux on the metal, we got you covered. All of that technology is rock stable, solid, is production ready, and it's been tested for years. And we have all sorts of ways that you're able to orchestrate these things because we've been working on them for years and we have large industry support. So is there a danger that this doesn't work out? Is there there a danger that some people just sink further into Windows because, hey, at the end of the day, now you can get Bash on Windows, now you can manage your your Ubuntu virtual environments on Windows? Yeah, maybe. That's a possibility. But I think that's a risk that we need to take, isn't it? Isn't that where we need to go to to get to a place where people understand that Linux is a friendly technology, something not to be scared of, and we're not going to tie one hand behind their back for the purpose of making a point because that's kind of what i feel like i'm doing if i say things like well we need to exist only on linux and we need to put those tools only on linux to get people onto linux that's the way my that's the way the the manipulative portion of my brain works the sales portion of my brain works the portion of my brain that wants to be the advocate of linux but the rational consulting portion of me says that this is a good thing and says that this is, the road, this is the road to least resistance and this is how we get maximum penetration on Linux. So good job, Canonical. Good job bringing a quality product to Windows. Good job moving the needle forward to getting people to use Linux. Now, my next guest is Simon Quigley. He's the release manager and team lead for Lubuntu. You can follow him on Twitter at T. 2. He's a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. Hey, Simon, welcome to the program.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: So you wear a number of different hats. You work for AltaSpeed. You work for The Ask Noah Show. You do some work for Debian. You dabble around in Lubuntu. Today, you're wearing your Lubuntu hat, and you're happy to come on the program. We thank you for doing so to talk about your new constitution going into effect on February 1st. So I guess start with the 30-second elevator pitch. Why did Lubuntu need a new constitution, and what are the major changes?
0: So we're moving from sort of a, a technically led oligarchy, so where the, the the main people who have worked on the project for the last couple of years get to make all the decisions and govern how the project is moving forward. As you know, as we've as we've gained a lot of different contributors, I think we're up to fifteen different team members. Um, we've had to really scale processes, and you know the the people that are that are already leading Lubuntu, it's sort of become a bottleneck so what we're doing is moving to just a meritocracy so the people who contribute to the project have the power in how the project is being shaped going forward um it's it's just a matter of restructuring it so that the the main contributors have more time and can make the most important decisions and the the people who we have different specialization groups such as language specialization groups qa um, artwork and design and whatever else we're going to let the people who are good at those do um, have the decisions over you know how those are governed and we're just going to give them that power rather than like i said before having it just be a select few individuals that are doing that
2: so essentially you're handing power back to the community rather than concentrating it with a select few individuals
0: Exactly. So the, the idea is, um, we would just have this this the main con uh, the main council at the top, and we would delegate the positions. Like like I said before, there's artwork and design, um, release management, QA, language teams, and whatever else. So we delegate those, and then the the main decisions, the 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 main um, decisions, including who's a member of the project, who gets to be delegated, and stuff like that. That's all centralized to the council and. Um, while well, it does look like we are centralizing things to one body of people, it really is a matter of of making sure that each contributor has a say in, in the project.
2: Are you following any other model? Is there another group that we can look to and you can point to them and say, hey, over there, those guys have done exactly what we're trying to do and it's been very successful at managing their community, so we want to pick that model, we want to implement their success because we want to model success. Is there such a model that you're looking towards, or are you kind of flying by the seat of your pants and making it up as you go along? So what we've
0: done is we've looked at a couple different projects. You you might have recently heard about the Solus project, um, the Void Linux project, uh, the Linux kernel specifically with with all the controversy around the code of conduct. We've taken those communities, and then communities that that team members that are already in Ubuntu, um, we've been, been in a, in a couple of different projects ourselves. So you know, as you said at the beginning of the of the segment here, um, I'm in, in Debian, Ubuntu, speed and whatever else. And each one of those has a different governance structure. So you know, as well as as different people on our team have been in in a variety of projects. So we decided to take the the things that. Void Linux, Solus, and, um, and the Linux kernel have learned from those processes and the, the benefits of the, the communities that we're already in, we decided to take all of those elements and fit that into the, the scale of the Lubuntu project
2: at the moment. And you said the scale of the Lubuntu project is about 15 members. So have there been some irreconcilable differences? Has there been some beef between members that now you need a formalized process to go back into handle disputes and stuff like this? Or is this more of a preemptive measure?
0: It is. It's more of a preemptive measure. Um you know, especially these the the conflicts you could see in in the major communities that I mentioned before, um, they could have prevent been prevented by a document we have right here, um, just a, a clear decision making process. And it's also modeled by the Ubuntu Code of Conduct, which has an escalation process to the Ubuntu Community Council. So we are follow- we are both modeling the same process and being preemptive. Um, we have had some internal team disputes, but I don't th- I don't necessarily think those would be solved by this process.
2: Have you found the Ubuntu code of conduct to be an improvement over some of the other code of conducts that are out there and in the process that have generated some, I guess, discussion? Yeah. So
0: the Ubuntu code of conduct, in my opinion, is just a a, a guiding beacon of light. For how code of conduct should be, um, there's recently recently been controversy around the contributor code of conduct, for example, the or the the contributor covenant as as the as Linux kernel adopted, and other different codes of conduct. And I I think that the Ubuntu code of conduct, using that as sort of a model, is good because it allows contributors who know what they're doing and they they know the decisions they're about to make to make those decisions and go forward. And that and a couple different elements of the code of conduct, including, like I said, the escalation process that I find particularly notable, um, and a few other a few other points of the Ubuntu code of conduct. You can find that at Ubuntu.com, believe slash code of conduct, something like that. And it's 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 just a model for how we how we wanted to do to do this. Um in general though, yeah, I think the Ubuntu Code of Conduct is a really great code of conduct and it really solves a lot of problems especially in, in, in a project the size of, of Ubuntu now in, a, in the Ubuntu project I believe last time I checked we were around 700 official Ubuntu members so the the, the project has really scaled up and allowing the contributors to do what they do best is is a, a core value that we took in into Ubuntu and it's it's certainly something that I think the Ubuntu project has done right in their code of conduct
2: how does the revamped of the, the constitution for this council how does that affect or impact labuntu users or will they even notice is this something that just happens behind the scenes or might there be ramifications for users
0: i definitely think if if users will see difference which the difference i think in my opinion will be negligible um if they do see a difference they're going to notice i think a, a higher quality product and that is because we're streamlining streamlining's. uh streamlining if i can talk some of the processes and you know we're making it easier for contributors to join the project and in general i think that that will improve the quality of of lubuntu rather than have any sort of disadvantage and you know in general it also it also helps that i you know i mentioned before the 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 Solus project and the void linux project in both of those projects um it, you you deal with something called Bus Factor, which is basically if one of the main people leaves and they have access to all the infrastructure and everything, then the project, you know, it, it's going to have a hard time, time continuing. And for users of Solus and Void Linux, that is definitely something that I've seen users in the community taking it into account. Um, whereas with Ubuntu, we have a clear process where th- when we delegate power, we we need to have a process for handover if it becomes necessary. So if somebody gets, like a, like, it is, like I said, in the bus factor. If somebody unexpectedly you know, were to get hit by a bus or something were to happen to them that they are no longer able to contribute, we have taken that and we've made sure that the, the power is sort of distributed as the, the Lubuntu project rather than any one individual having it. So I guess my point in, in that is, not only will it, it allow for a higher quality product now that our businesses are a little bit more streamlined, but you can see Lubuntu around for the next, next long while
2: because we've ensured processes that will, you know, make sure that the project sticks around. It's interesting you say that because that was going to be my next question. Where do you predict the size of the Lubuntu member community to be in the next few years? Is it about the right size? Do you see it maybe scaling back a little bit or do you see it blowing up and taking off into a whole nother level?
0: I don't see it scaling to the size of a project like Ubuntu or Debian, but I do definitely see that there's there's growth. There's especially growth around the right now around the localization communities. So we have a, a Spanish group that we've established for for users and and translators of of Spanish and Ubuntu, and we're up to about 200 members, which is more than our development group. And now, um, as of today, we're just, we've just started a Portuguese group. So I definitely think in some areas, some more te- for some more technical than others, we are going to scale. I just don't necessarily think it'll it'll scale in the same way as a project like Ubuntu or Debian. Um, I just, I definitely think that the size that we have, our, our main technical contributor base right now is about just right. I mean, we could use a couple more developers and if you'd like to help us out, you can go to lubuntu.me links where it has a lot of information for joining our development channels. But generally it's, we, we could use a couple more people, but I don't see it scaling.
2: Simon Quigley, release manager and team leader for Lubuntu on Twitter at T 2. And I guess this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Simon, thanks so much for taking the time to be here with us. We'll get you back on the program real soon. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. Anytime, Simon. You you know you always got an invitation here. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice here. Become a part of the program. A new Raspberry Pi is out, the Raspberry Pi Compute Module 3+, plus, or simply referred to as the CM3+. plus. Now, here is what I have always loved about the Raspberry Pi. It allows you to engage in projects without any perceived cost. There are so many things that I have thought about doing, and I went, "Why well, do I need a computer to do that?" Well, that's two, three hundred dollars. Guess that's not going to happen. Now that cost has gotten down to twenty-five bucks. So literally, I have a, a, a like a storage system in my house, in in my lab where I I work from home, and um, when I work from home, and I have little bins that are labeled with various different things. So I've got one for USB-C power supplies, for example. I have one for audio cables, one for display adapters, all sorts of things like that, right? One of those bins is the Raspberry Pi bin. And I have cases for Raspberry Pis and Raspberry Pi motherboards and supply, power supplies for Raspberry Pis, spare SD cards, and spare installation media. And what that allows me to do is anytime I come across a project and I'm like, that's very cool. If it runs on a Pi, I'll absolutely give it a shot. If I have to dedicate specific powerful hardware for it, maybe I get to it, maybe I don't. If it runs on a Pi, it'll at least get a try. And certain things, like the Volumio project, I put on a Pi and liked it so much, it got its own Pi purchased for it, got installed, and it's been in production ever since. By the way, it's run flawlessly ever since. Here's the only complaint I've ever had with the Pi. The Raspberry Pi, despite where people shoehorn the thing into, was designed from the ground up to be a device to use to teach children about computers. It was a a device that was used to teach and educate people how to code software. It was never designed to be a production computer. It certainly wasn't designed to be put into embedded devices, and it absolutely 110% was not designed to be put into medical devices. Yet the Raspberry Pi has found itself in all of those places. And it's found itself in all of those places because it's proved itself to be a very reliable, robust system. As reliable and as robust as it is, we still see from time to time some stability issues with the Raspberry Pi. Part of it is just in the power supply filtering, for example, Raspberry Pis are very particular about what kind of power supply they want to work with. Now, if you know that and you can purchase a power supply built around its requirements, then you're fine. But if you just go out and plug any old micro USB connector into any old power brick, you'll have mixed results. One of the things that they're aiming to do with the compute module series is design specifically for use in embedded and industrial and small devices rather than retro arcade machines and personal clouds. So the idea is it's go- they're going to take it and turn it from a hobby device into a device that is specifically designed for professional use. I haven't had a chance to talk to our friend Jason Plum to see if that pacifies him because he was actually one of the first people to turn me on to the fact that the Raspberry Pi really is not designed to do professional-grade embedded things. It's really designed more as a hobbyist device. And don't get me wrong, both Jason and myself love the Raspberry Pi for a hobby device. We just don't love it to run some central component of your air conditioner that if and when it fails, you are left without an air conditioner. It is based on the Broadcom BCM2837 Bravo Zero Series, a Cortex-A53 processor at 1.2 GHz. The CM3 starts at 25 bucks. So if you thought they were going to screw you to the wall because they are upgrading essentially what they're saying the device is for, you would be wrong. And it turns out they are going to continue to honor the original pricing mechanism, which is, you know, their Raspberry Pi has kind of built itself as the $25 computer. They're going to keep that. So the CM3, just the board starts at $25. Now, as you know, if you've ever purchased a Raspberry Pi, it doesn't come with a storage device. So it has, obviously it has built-in RAM, but you don't have any any storage. So what they offer is a couple of options that are pre-built, for $30, you get 8 gigs of eMMC storage. For $35, they'll give you 16 gigs of eMMC storage. And for $40, bucks, you will get 32 gigs of eMMC storage. Now, some of you out there are looking at this and saying, what am I going to do with a box that has 32 gigs of storage? you're going to embed that box into a device that's only going to run one piece of software. You can put that device in your garage and be able to SSH into your garage to open and close the door. That's the kind of stuff you can do with this thing. And you can trust that it's designed for industrial embedded stuff because that's what the people designed it for. Now, this is cool. They also have an additional compute I.O. board, which is available for somebody who's looking to repurpose the compute module into something more flexible. So this I.O. board offers traditional... Connections like an HDMI port, USB, and Display Ports. So that's going to allow you to have that pseudo desktop-like experience if that's what you're after. Again, I would argue that they are would tell you to go to the traditional Raspberry Pi if that's what you're looking for. But if you want to do that with the uh, embedded um, or with the excuse me the Compute Module three, they have an I/O board that you can do it. And the community response, interestingly enough, not ideal. People are not uh, People are not excited. Every form I went to, there people are like, oh, I don't really understand what's better about that than the regular Raspberry Pi. Doesn't seem like you could do anything with it that the regular Raspberry Pi couldn't do. No, it's really cool. It's really neat. They're addressing a need. They found people that were shoehorning Raspberry Pis into situations that it didn't belong into, and they stepped back and said, hey, you know what? We could do a better job. So if you want a device that you can embed, we'll give you a device you can embed. Here you go, and we'll give it to you at the exact same price. Good job, Raspberry Pi team. I'll be buying one. A couple of software releases to talk about. Tails 3.12 is out. For macOS, they have a new method, uh, a new simpler method of getting uh, the Tails software burned onto the flash drive for creating it. Essentially, they're using Etcher, which we've talked about, instead of the command line. And Etcher is essentially a graphical tool for writing images onto flash drives. For Debian and Ubuntu, they're now using the Gnome Discs app, which, by the way, I have, even though I'm running KDE, I still have Gnome Discs because it's absolutely a fantastic partition manager and allows you to create things like encrypted partitions and get a very great bird's eye view of what your disk situation looks like at any given time on the computer. Absolutely love Gnome Discs. Great decision on their part. For other Linux distributions, the new method is faster and doesn't require two USB sticks and an intermediary tails anymore. So they're still going to provide images for people that want to use DVD or uh, DVD drives or virtual machines. And of course, they have continued to iterate on a bunch of bug fixes and increased performance and speed. Check that out. We'll have a link for you about Tails in the show notes. Make sure to download that. If you haven't downloaded Tails, it is essentially a security privacy distro that you can... uh, burn onto a flash drive you can plug into your computer. You boot off of that USB drive, and everything you do in that computing environment is destroyed at the time that you restart the computer. So it's excellent if you want maximum privacy when you're browsing uh, on uh, the internet or browsing on your computer. comes preloaded with a bunch of software that will help you do that as well. Kodi 18 is out. Significant improvements to their filtering, their media uh, So you, when you, uh, from your audio sources. You can now filter from media source, artist, uh, artist type, artist sort name, all of those things, faster API access. They also have some improvements uh, in their back-end support for Radio RDS, so you can actually get the little text of what song is playing and all of that. They have a binary addition uh, or add-on support that allows for the add-on binary repository for things like PVR and screensavers, Android lean-back and voice control, If you'd like, if you'd like to take advantage of that, not really my cup of tea. And probably the coolest thing I think I've seen come out of the Kodi project in a very long time, retro player gaming and associated game control support. One of the biggest features of this release, support for gaming emulators, the ability to take ROMs and traditional hardware controllers that are for game consoles and connect them to your Kodi box, whatever you're running on it. I choose to run it on the Nvidia Shield because I think it's the most powerful, well-produced device that comes in a budget-friendly way. And provides me with way more power than I'd ever need. Well, now I can take advantage of that power because I'm going to turn it into a retro gaming console. That's right. At this time, you can, uh, you can essentially have a whole world of retro gaming at your fingertips, all from the same interface that you get your movies, your music, and your TV shows. For the genuine experience, they've also introduced support for joysticks, game pads, and platform-specific controls so the games will work just as they were intended as you remember them back in 1995. Boy, I wonder if I can play N64 Goldeneye on there. Wouldn't that be fantastic if I could play N64 Goldeneye on my NVIDIA Shield using Kodi? I think that would be absolutely fantastic. I'm going to have to try that. Again, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Of course, you can join us in our interactive mumble room. We'd love to take your question that way. Listener writes in to live at asknoahshow.com. We try to ask that you keep these uh, emails brief so that we can read them on the air. Um... But uh, this was a, a really cool piece of uh, feedback, so I thought we would, uh, we'd take some time to address it. Noah, I'm a new listener to the Ask Noah podcast, coming over from the Destination Linux podcast. I started with episode 110 of your show, and I subscribed to the feed. You'll probably get me to join the Telegram group because you did some great promotion of it, and it might be a community that I need. Yes, you do. That's saying something because Wimpy and the boys from the Ubuntu podcast haven't got me into Telegram yet, and I'm a diehard Ubuntu Mate user. Anyway, to the core of the message, during episode 110, Eric, the IT guy, mentions that he wanted to move to a system where people could get his new briefs, or his news briefs on a daily basis. Those are his intentions, and I absolutely applaud him for it. I'm not sure of the exact distribution method he had in mind, but if he's considering multiple formats, I feel a podcast format should be one of them. Here's my greed pitch. My morning routine is to listen to a 15-minute podcast for the U.S. news headlines and then go to 15 to 20 minutes of general tech headlines. If Eric were to do a Linux headlines in the same manner that he does during the Ask Noah show in a daily podcast, I would subscribe to it this very minute. I am not driving and never think twice about it, but my morning routine would be embedded with a five-minute Linux brief. Linux is really what I care about most. This would be, better. This would be a better lead into my near-hour-long commute. Just food for thought. Here's some ego stroking for you, Noah. Just for final thoughts. I hope you never lose your passion for what you talk about. Your messages are very empowering, inspiring. Keep up the good work, Eric. Well, first of all, Eric, you have a great name. I'm sure Eric will the IT guy will agree with that. Second of all, thank you very much for your kind words. That's absolutely the road that we are going down. Essentially what we're gonna do is we are we are trying to formalize and 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 um develop a process for getting all of this stuff into production. They're all great ideas. It just takes a tremendous amount of work on the back end. So kind of the way that this is going to work out, Eric is going to spend some time working on, uh, his IT Guys podcast. We're going to try to get that off the ground. Then step two will be moving to a daily show and you absolutely can bet at the time that we do that we will absolutely publish an RSS feed so that you can get those news briefings daily. We also want to enable your smart device. So if you want to get your lady in a tube and you'd like to get Linux news that way, you're welcome to do that. We are going to make sure that happens again. I'm- Always interested in working with people from the community. People like Eric have expressed an interest in delivering a quality product back to the community and filling a need. And of course, at the Ask Noah show, we're going to help him do that because, man, that's the spirit of open source, right? Somebody else has something. And uh, then he lets me take that as a packaged deal and run it in uh, the Ask Noah show at the bottom of the hour. So if all you're listening to is the Ask Noah show, you still get those news briefs. So I think it works out. All around. By the way, you referenced the giveaway that we did from System 76. A huge thank you to Emma Marshall and Carl and the entire team at System 76 for giving $250 away to a lucky winner who is in our Geek Lab. If you're not familiar with the Geek Lab, it's a free application called Telegram. You can get it on Android, Mac OS, Windows, uh, Linux, every place. And you can join the Geek Lab by visiting the website telegram.asnowashow.com. That will put you into the Telegram group from time to time. We tend to do a giveaway and uh, say thank you for being part of that community. (laughs) We intended to give an an additional two $25 gift certificates away, but guess what? Neither member 1000 nor member 1024 has responded to my requests. And so here's what's going to happen. If I don't hear back from you guys within the next week, what I'm going to do is uh, I want to open the program next week by just saying, Hey, email your phone number into live at asknoahshow.com. And what I'll do is I will just draw, start calling people. First person that emails their phone number in, we're just going to call them right here on the air until we find somebody that uh, that wants to take my money. <laughs> so that would be a great way to end the program, right? Hey, guys, did you know this episode is available as a downloadable podcast? To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit Show. Also, make sure to follow me personally on Twitter, at Linux. A bunch of really cool stuff is happening. We'll see you back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com.